What's up, everybody? Welcome back. It is episode 23 of the What's Real podcast. As usual, I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my main man, the J himself, Jared Bajoris. What's going on, brother? What's real? Hey, Ed. Feel uh feel pretty good this week, personally, even though um, we'll get into the whole shebang, but crazy, crazy-ass times as 2020 just keeps staying as a life roller coaster. Um, but yeah, feeling pretty good. Happy to be on the pod, man. Happy to bullshit with my boy. And, um, you know, already at episode 23 at what's real and my goofy ass correlated the number 22. Like I was explaining what I do at work to remember numbers with Emmett Smith. So I would be remiss not to bring up, uh, especially all the Chicago bulls and Jordan talk on the pod here that it's 23 going right with Michael Jordan. Yeah. And, uh, speaking of Jordan, we saw another, uh, Pretty big release this past weekend, which I completely slept on for no apparent reason. Uh, the release of the Flint Jordan 13s. Uh, you actually got a pair, man, so that's pretty cool. Got him. Yeah, I got that notification got you get on the sneakers app. They got him. I love how they do that. Um, it's just one of those weird things like getting likes and stuff in technology era 2020. Got to get that, that dopamine fix, man. Like, yeah, you just spent $200 on shoes. Like, fuck you, yeah, man. I'm the and man. You're thrilled because shoes is the only thing you could be into nowadays where there's raffles that you pay to do where you don't win. Yeah, and just you lose get money. For, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we just, said like, just to get a pair of shoes. <laughs> a couple weeks ago, talking about some of the, the releases, I had missed uh, a couple of them um, you know, for that reason. Just couldn't get my hands on them. They sold out, sold out right away um, with the Fire Reds and the Royal Toes. And then. Um, I ended up getting a pair of SEs, like we talked about, some Jordan 1 Lows, and, and now caught the Flint. So, yeah, you know, it kind of balances Did out you, the life of a sneakerhead. You said you wore the Lows, right? Yeah. Dude, aren't they like, I don't know how much you wore them. Like, I don't know if you just wore them real quick or if you had them on all day or anything. Yeah, just to like my parents, that, but, but all day, yeah. It's, uh, it's pretty wild with ones, man, at least for me. Like, I feel like they get more comfortable the more you wear them. Like, once they get acclimated to your feet, they're super comfortable. Like, they're they're just normal shoes when you first start wearing them. But, like, I start noticing with mine, like, the more I wear them, like, they're, they wear in really well. And you find them to be, like, one of the most comfortable pairs that you have, especially for, like, just walking around all day and shit. Yeah, I broke them in nice, man. They're, they're, I like them. They, they fit well and... uh they're what we, we talked about kind of um, previewing them and, and, and you and I talking off air about them and stuff that they're, they're great summer shoes. And that's what I was looking for at the start of the summer to go with shorts because they're lows. So um, I, I had mentioned they were the color of our school district growing up, the Woodland Hills Wolverines, turquoise, white, and black. And I wore it to my sister's house. We did a nice little some, somewhat social distancing, um, you know, beautiful uh, Sunday sat over there. And my brother-in-law that we grew up with, too, is a Woodland Hills Wolverine. And then his kids were, like, all gushing over them. So, you know, some some nice, pretty Jordan 1s, man, for sure. You know, it's weird, man, because uh, obviously for, like, the last few years, like, the the highs, like, the OG highs and stuff are the ones that, like, everybody wants. But, like, that's starting to change a little bit, man, because I noticed, like, for a while there, like, ones were kind of out there, like, the, the lows were out there, and uh, and they were easily attainable, like, you can get them in the store and whatever, 
And that's starting to change a little bit, man. It looks like because uh, they're they're definitely like a cheaper alternative for a lot of people, and a lot of people buy the the highs and stuff with the idea of just keeping them dead stock. So I think a lot of people are buying the ones to wear. So it's kind of cool, but then again, it kind of sucks too because you know, as usual, everything becomes harder to buy, and that sucks whenever you like to, you know, just get like a replacement pair or something like that. It's getting to the point where that doesn't even really happen anymore. Yeah, the demand's really high right now for them. And- were those those old heads still buying? All these young bucks are swooping in too, and as we said, you know, spending probably money they don't even have on them. Like, man, I could afford them, and I can't even buy them. You know, you goose. God only knows. You work at, um, you know, Arby's, and you got a pair of freaking flints. Yeah, I mean, but then again, I used to do the same kind of shit when I was of course, too. yeah. Uh, hey, I don't judge. But, but you know, nonetheless, it's just kind of funny that. Uh, there's a whole generation of people enthralled in shoes for a guy that they never saw play. But then again, I mean, we live in an era too where people buy shoes because a rapper wore them. So I don't know. It is what it is, but nonetheless, still a lot of cool stuff coming out throughout the summer, as we talked about uh, previously on our sneakerhead edition of the what's real podcast. But uh, you know, nonetheless, we're always looking out because you know, we're kind of addicts for sneakers. So you know how that goes. Um, Also, um, one thing I wanted to bring up, because I thought this was kind of cool, too. We haven't really talked about this on the show. Um, but uh, the season four finale uh, was Sunday night of Rick and Morty. And uh, I had a chance to watch that. I don't know if you got to see it yet, but uh, but I know you've been watching. But it's been a pretty good season, I thought, overall. I'm all caught up. Yeah, I watched the whole thing. It, it went fast, man. Like, you know, most of the shows do not. Like, we watch so many things binging and stuff like that on the streaming services so then when you kind of jump back into stuff you're dvring and it's weekly as opposed to being able to binge it 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 kind of just shows you how fast things go though because even though it's like by the week and you don't get that opportunity to binge it when it's live like the the newest season of rick and morty it it still kind of flew by and i knew i know they kind of broke up the the season into to two parts the um first half of the season aired um earlier this year and, um, you know, they finished up with it now. So uh, with the way they do this animation, it seems like it's going to be another long wait for season five. But as we always say, man, tons of stuff to, to fill the time uh, until season five. But, but yeah, they, they cracks me up. And this is the first time we really brought Rick and Morty up on the podcast. Um, so, yeah, for those that don't aren't familiar, uh, I highly recommend to check it out. Uh, a lot of pop culture references. That, that's probably like the biggest aspect for me with Rick and Morty. Hey, Ed, is that. They have some really intelligent humor and, uh, you know, references and things. And I get like everything, you know, even like the yeah. scientific aspects with like the cloning that they they put into it and everything. Because that was a big part with um, the season finale here with the clone of his daughter and how they did all that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a really good song, too, at the very end that they used throughout the episode that I thought was kind of cool. Uh, they do yeah, it every once in a while. <laughs> Well, they do a thing where, like, they'll put a song in the show like that, and then they'll, uh, like, make it available for download and stuff, like, a day or two later, which is just kind of neat that, you know, that's a thing that exists now for me. Um, but it was a really cool episode. It was kind of like a movie, the way that it played out. And it's it's amazing how, like, in one episode, they'll, they'll essentially, you know, cast the characters as being just, like, completely nonsensical throwaways. And then they'll do an episode like they did the finale where, like, you know, like, they do this deep-seated, like, 
you know, episode about like Rick and his his like fucked up mental state and how sad it really is. Yeah. <laughs> like it's it's really a good show because of that. Like I think it's multi layered. Like sometimes it's just done for stupid comedy, and then the, it does get sentimental and stuff. And it's a it, it's a cool show because of that. I, I really like it. I don't think there's really anything uh, on TV right now that's quite like it. So uh, I always look forward to it, and I I kind of avoided it for a little while for no apparent reason. Uh, and then it was kind of like, okay, what the fuck is this Rick and Morty thing I keep hearing about? And, uh, and then like, once I checked it out, I was pretty much hooked from there and I've seen all four seasons. So, uh, it's, it's a great show. I definitely recommend if you guys haven't checked it out and you want something different that, you know, like we said, like it's funny, it does a lot of different things. It's a pretty smart show overall. And obviously too, it's not for people who are easily offended, um, (laughs) But nonetheless, it's still a really good show. I definitely recommend uh, people check it out. It kind of reminds me, even though it's nothing like it, it kind of reminds me of what it was like when South Park first started. as just something that was so vastly different from everything else that was being done uh, that, you know, you kind of had to check it out. And obviously, it's a little bit less for kids, I guess, or aimed at kids uh, than than something like South Park would be, as weird as that is to say. Oh, definitely. Uh, but it's it, you know it's definitely something different, so I, I enjoy it. My wife has me change it when I'm watching it. The kids are around because they'll since it's animated and it's like really good animation. Of they course, kind of get, yeah. They get enthralled with it. It's like crazy because even though like the Comedy Central ones, because if you're especially if you're watching it streaming, they full on swear. They don't edit it um, on Hulu. Yep. But if um, you know you're watching the DVR episodes, they at least beat the, the language. But it's still there. I mean, the kids know. So I, she has me like change it or whatever if, if they're going to be around the room. I'm in watching it. But um, but yeah, it's a great show. And as usual with the Jay's nerdy ass, I mean, I'm to the point with it where I have, um, of course, a Ricky Rick and Morty T-shirt, my T-shirt collection, and I have both of the VR PS4 VR games that are correlated I, with that's... Rick and Morty. <laughs> Dude, that's one of the few VR games that I've played up to this point. That was the first one that I ever played. And uh, it's, I mean, it's not the most, you know, action-packed kind of thing, but, like, it's super impressive to kind of just show what, you know, what, VR what they can, can actually do with it. Yeah, it's a really, really good, uh, you know, uh, way of, of introducing VR to somebody new, I thought. Yeah, it's kind of the same, similar style of gameplay that one of my kids' favorite games uh, on there. Because uh, I'll let them play. I don't let them play too long because it says, like, for 12 and under, you know, you can't go too crazy with it. So I definitely, um, you know, I'm not trying to put it out on the pod how bad of a parent I am. <laughs> but I, you know, <laughs> I, I just you know, I let them check it out. But it's a game called um, Job Simulator. And it's it's similar gameplay that they took to that because it was like a popular game. Um, okay. And uh, yeah, it's it's just great to, to be within that world. Like that that's the cool thing with with some of the franchises. And there's not too many of them, but for example, there's a Batman one as well. And the it's just cool f- for those being some of the first VR experiences because you're completely immersed in an already established world that is a fan you've watched for years, you know, watching Rick and Morty and watching, of course, Batman for forever, and then getting to do a VR experience within those worlds, and you're kind of in it, you know, like, especially the Batman one opens up, you're going down to the fucking Batcave, it's like unbelievable, so, you know, uh, we've talked about it in the past, like, it's it's not to the point VR where it's commonplace um, over, like, your traditional video game consoles, but I definitely think that's down the road, and, um, 
you know, for, for those that haven't experienced VR, cause there's a lot of people that they come to the house that haven't experienced it. And I'm like, dude, you, you got to try it, you know, at least for a couple minutes. Like even, even my wife's friends that come over, I throw the headset on them just so they can experience it. Uh, but it's definitely growing. And I think that's definitely the future eventually when they make it really more accessible, you know, wireless, things like that down the road. Well, you know, it, it, it's the kind of thing that just off the top of my head, like the, the way I thought about it is like, well, it's cool for gamers, but most people aren't going to care um, until I used it. Um, and it's like a lot of things like I used to think the same way about like, uh, you know, like touch screens, like the way your iPhone is like there was a time period where they were, you know, like, oh, this has a touch screen. And it was stuff that you stayed away from because the technology wasn't there yet. So it was always like you were taking a chance with the touchscreen stuff to where you were going to get a shitty product. And I think a lot of VR stuff has been the same way, but that's changed. And I think that's part of the reason why, like how you said that, you know, this is the way things are moving. I, I totally agree with you because the technology is there. It's where it needs to be for this stuff to be effective. So yeah, that, that it's is only like- a matter of time. Yeah, I was just gonna say, like, it seems like, um, you know, just to, with your what you were saying about the touchscreen, it's like then it seems overnight it's commonplace. You know, then it's mm-hmm. like then it's like Ready Player One, where you have the the little lady in the pink tracksuit, you know, doing crazy shit in the living room with the headset on. Well, and I think too that I mean it's kind of weird to to correlate the two, but it's it's true. I think that stuff like that's only going to become more prevalent and more successful, especially in post pandemic earth here. You know what I mean? Where there's going to be a lot of instances where people aren't going to be able to go do the things that they used to do from a leisure perspective. So that might be the only way a lot of people could do things, Uh, especially I think it's a good tool and and a good thing for people with disabilities and stuff too, where they could do things that they normally wouldn't be able to do. So, I mean, I see there's a lot of of, uh, growth that is there for it. So it it doesn't strike me as odd that this seems to be like where the industry is kind of turning, like the next phase of what video gaming is going to be is probably going to be VR. Exactly. Yeah, I was saying that, um, you know, one of the first, we were talking about living in the pandemic and being quarantined, especially when it first started, where it was like really much more of a lockdown than it is now in the yellow phase, soon to be green phase kind of situation. And um, I, I had mentioned to you, I don't know if it was on the air, but we talked about my um, Creed game. I have the Creed game uh, from the Rocky franchises and of course oh, yeah. the, the separate Creed franchise. And that's like a legitimate exercise. You know, you're throwing punches constantly and, and you have that big headset on, dude. I'll be, I'll be drenched after like a half hour, 40 minutes on there. And I don't, I don't know if you've played uh, VR over your buddies enough um, to check out like some of the streaming as well. Like when you put on the helmet – and you go to Hulu, it will give you, uh, same with YouTube, it will give you the option for a VR mode. Yeah. So, I, I haven't done it, but I know friend, like a friend of mine really loves watching movies and stuff like that because he's like, dude, I literally, it's like sitting on a couch in the forest watching yeah, a movie Yeah, you can do on it on the moon. Screen. Exactly. And like I, I tried to do that for um, the last drive-in just to see if that was like available on there. And it really wasn't. It was just, I mean, you can still watch it, but it's like normal, you know? Okay. Um, yep. Which maybe brings which, up something we were going to talk about. Yeah, I was going to say, which was, a, at least for me, was a pretty big weekend. Uh, watching the last drive-in with Joe Bob on Shudder. Um, you know, he usually gives some clues through the week of what the movies are going to be, but they usually keep them under wraps. But last week, they had announced one of them early, um, and it's a doozy. Uh, and you know this because you've actually seen it before, but they announced earlier on that the second feature was going to be a film called Cannibal Holocaust. 
a lot of people listening to this probably have no idea what the hell that means, but it's a movie from 1980. It's a cannibal film um, that is as extreme of cinema as you're possibly going to find. Um, there's real animal deaths in the movie. It, it's going to sound absolutely grotesque, but the reason why um, that it's such a talked-about film and why it's such a poignant thing is because even with all that stuff, um, it's a fucking brilliant movie in a lot of ways, and it's hard for me to explain it without giving, you know, spoilers, which I wouldn't want to do to somebody watching it for the first time, um, but that stuff, the, the violence in it plays into the central theme of the movie, which is basically the overstimulation of media. Um, it's a movie that's extremely, uh, extremely more valuable now even more so than when it was made obviously because media and things like that are more prevalent today than they've ever been so uh and it's a very important movie in the world and in the the history of horror films so i I was very very proud of joe bob for showing that i was glad that they showed it um a lot of people were pissed off that they did show it um and they and in true joe bob fashion he, uh, he posted, well, he didn't post, but the first movie that they showed is a movie called Dead Heat, which is the completely polar opposite of Cannibal Holocaust. It's actually a buddy cop zombie movie with Treat Williams and Joe Piscopo that is universally panned, even though I love the movie. I always have since I was a kid. Um, it's a lot of fun. Um, but it was an odd, odd pairing, uh, but I like that kind of stuff, and it was a really good week for Joe Bob, and I was dying to see... Uh, kind of like his running commentary with Cannibal Holocaust, and uh, it was really good. Even though I know most of the information, I've been lucky uh, to meet people that worked on Cannibal Holocaust. Cannibal Holocaust. I met the director Ruggiero Diodato before. Um, sweet old Italian man, which is pretty funny. Doesn't speak a lot of English, um, but I love the movie. I think it's a brilliant movie, and I'm really glad that they showed it. And it's a just shows me another reason why I subscribe to Shutter because, you know, I really enjoy the last drive-in, and I think that, uh, you know, they go out of their way to push the boundaries with the movies that they they show on there. Um, it's not always just a fun, good time, which I think is pretty cool. Um, and knowing Joe Bob and how he is with uh, how much he actually cares about movies and genre films and stuff like that. Um, I know that that kind of stuff is important to him. So I think it's pretty cool. Which the timing is amazing too, in such a PC culture and, um, you know, everybody getting pissed about everything. You know, like you said, there's a lot of, a lot of uproar about them even showing this movie, which, you know, that went, that was pretty funny too, where there was like six different warnings before, <laughs> before yeah, they started yeah. rolling the, the thing. And, and, Which, and, admittedly, as somebody that's seen the movie multiple times, like it is kind of important because it's like you sure. know, you've seen warnings before movies before, but like this one's like like you know it's kind of like all right, you know you're watching something fucked up. Then the second one, and it's like okay, like it's really violent though. And then the third one's like, um, I hope you're not dumb enough to have kids in the room for this. The fourth one's like, all right, guys, like it's really violent. And then the fourth one's kind of like, or like the fifth one's kind of like, all right, guys, I've kind of warned you by now. Like you probably don't want to watch this movie, but if you're still here, here it is. Like, which is hilarious. I love the last one too. Hey, Ed, where it said, um, like you were saying, it, it kind of broke it down for like the last time. Like now we're rolling it. Of course, the Jay paraphrasing, obviously. And um, the last thing it said was, see you on the other side. 
you know, and that just gets you in the mood. Like, yeah, man, we're going to revisit. Cause I, I, I had mentioned to you from, from my personal experience, I only watched it once cause, um, you know, I'm a big horror movie guy. I could take stuff, but over the years, and I always say it goes back to having kids kind of changed me being able to see certain things. And, and again, I can still handle it. I think it's just being in the mood. Um, you know, for example, I had told you for, for this in particular, watching it on Saturday, I had it on when I was doing some things and, um, you know, no, my kids weren't in the room and I, it was, it was during, um, some stuff going on, you know, with everything with the pandemic and, and different things that we'll get to get into later in the podcast. So I, I wasn't in the greatest mood because our world's not in the greatest place right now. And a certain scene came on in this and I was just like, yeah, I, I just can't do it right now. It's just not, not the right timing. Um, but seeing it in the past, just a quick rundown, like you say, hey Ed, I would never, I would never spoiler uh, this one um, as as a cinephile out of respect to anybody, because uh, like you said, I mean, it got kind of obscure um, here in 2020. Uh, there's a ton of, of course, the usual diehard fans that know about it, things like that. But a lot of the people that I had brought it up to w- with the film being on the the last drive-in, um, like my friends, like my friend Justin, I talk to on a daily basis. And, even my wife Katie, I'm like, did, did you ever happen to remember seeing this with me? And she didn't remember it at all. A lot of people don't know about it, so it's definitely a, a hardcore cinematic experience. And for those that don't know, the gist of it is, it's basically the Godfather of the found footage movies in a lot of ways, um, you yeah, know, or the movie within a movie, the movie within a movie type, type thing, comparable yep. to like the Blair Witch Project, which people might have thought that was like the first one. It was, it was Cannibal Holocaust, and it's about um, New York uh, City um, University film students that go into the Amazon jungle to do a documentary and they don't come back, but their footage is found. So it's one of those things. And two, two points that I had just real quick ahead on my end. Um, first off was the fact that this movie is so crazy and controversial, especially you can imagine in the 80s, that they had to round up the cast because people thought they actually were dead. They thought this was real. That, yes. that's, that's the yeah, scale that's, this film is on. And that's something that I've seen the director actually speak about. Yeah. Um, and the movie does this intelligently. Um, there's a lot of grotesque scenes in the movie that aren't just scenes. Like, they're not real. Um, it's special effects and everything. Um, but then they mix them in with about, I would say about four moments off the top of my It might be five um, moments of real animal death in the movie and that blurs the lines you know significantly and this might sound stupid but anybody that knows and understands filmmaking will get this um one of the things a movie can have that really reinforces the point you know obviously you can have good actors you can have great dialogue you can have stylish really cool direction and you know the the director of photography just shoots things a certain way that you know and you get mood from those things well one of the most important things for any movie to just to establish its mood and kind of the atmosphere is the music and the music in cannibal holocaust is done by an italian man named riz ortolani and it's a very odd kind of soundtrack um with a lot of it being mellow and calm but a lot of it is orchestra music and it is so good it's literally in my opinion one of the greatest film soundtracks of all time uh not just genre of any type of genre whatsoever and the music 
is something that really, really adds uh, to the overall picture of the movie. And um, it's super effective, and it's super good. Like, this is lightning in a bottle. It's kind of, you know, there's only a handful of movies in my life that I remember really giving me, like, a like a vibe or, or a feeling from them, like, well after you watch them. And I'm talking stuff like Cannibal Holocaust is one of them. Uh, Taxi Driver's another one that's like that. Halloween. Um, Halloween's like that to a degree. Texas Chainsaw Massacre's like that. Night of the Living Dead is like that. Um, something like uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is kind of like that. Um, and uh, Deer Hunter is also like that. That's another one that just pops to mind. But they're movies that are just so visceral and they're just something about them really hits home. Uh, whether it be in a good way or a bad way. Um, I think they like Taxi Driver is a good example because it's not the same reasoning. Like, it's not because of violence that it sticks with you. It's because of, you know, the background. It's because of New exactly. York. It's because of the, 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 the whole... Sa- the, the Safdie brothers kind of do that with their films. Their soundtracks kind of create their worlds, you know, with, like, uncut gems and good time. Completely yeah. different than this, but that just came to mind as well with the like, music. I'm... I'm essentially talking like a small segment of movies that is way more than just sitting down to watch a movie. It yeah. becomes more like you, you, you know what I'm talking about yeah, when you've seen a movie. Definitely. It's, it's, it, you know, everybody has them and you know, cinema or like cannibal Holocaust is one of the things that like, if you're really trying to push the boundaries of cinema that you're watching, this is a good one for that. Um, it's a measure in what someone can sit through. Um, but I will say this, in a lot of movies, you're sitting through a lot of horrible shit, and it's just not worth it, and a lot, like, the movie's just not good, or you're just watching just unbridled violence, for violence sake. That's the whole gimmick, um, like the torture porn stuff. Exactly. This movie's not that. Um, there's a serious, serious subtext going on with the film. There is a reason for the violence, even though some find it reprehensible. Um, it's absolutely gross. I will say that. Oh, uh, dude, if you come out of this like, man, and I was, I had a fucking hard on half that movie, then you're, you're a sociopath. But it is funny because uh, a buddy of mine, Art Edinger, that we both know. Yeah, shout uh, out to Art. Who, who's a public defender, he's an awesome dude, but he's also a big movie fan. Uh, he always cracks me up because he, I remember he always says the same thing about Cannibal Holocaust, and it's a joke. Uh, and you have to know art to kind of understand this, but it's funny as hell. But he's like, the hardest thing about watching Cannibal Holocaust is my dick. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Art comes through. That's awesome. <laughs> and um, Which I... Oh, I love that. That yeah, cracks me up, man. It's great, dude. Um, <laughs> but yeah, my, my last um, take that I, I just wanted to mention, because um, it goes right in, you know, great call with the, the soundtrack and the music, is actually the visual. And let me explain. So as I mentioned when we first started talking, from my personal experience, I've only seen Cannibal Holocaust all the way through once, and it was way back, uh, probably at least 12 plus years ago or whatever, you know, back when we were doing bl- the blood type stuff and so it's a long, long. Yeah, I think time you ago. borrowed my copy, right? Yeah, yeah. And okay, you know, it's, it's probably DVD, right? Not even Blu-ray. Yeah, it was probably a bootleg at that time because they yeah, didn't even so have bootleg. a real so legitimate one out. So this is my exact point. So with my perspective, and you know, from my experience with Cannibal Holocaust initially, now 2020 with it coming on um, 
the last drive-in, and with me watching it on my biggest TV, you know, this, this huge, um, you know, 4K 3, 3D TV, I forgot how great it was visually. Like, I remember it being, yeah. like, a grainy kind of, like, that was part of the gimmick to make it, like, the Blair Witch did. Like, it's like a yeah. camcorder on purpose. Like, this movie's, yep. like, beautiful visual as well, and I forgot and about that. You know what's really cool, and Joe Bob brought this up, and I thought it was really cool that he brought this up, and I forgot about it completely watching the movie. Um, it's one of the few movies that you'll ever find an example of where it was shot in 35mm and 16mm, because what they did was, is uh, as Jared said, the group of students that went into the jungle and never came back, their footage gets found. It's shown in the movie, and all that was shot on 16mm. But there's a whole escapade of the movie where a doctor from New York uh, goes to the jungle to look for the footage. That stuff is all shot in 35 like a movie. So it's a really interesting aspect of filmmaking alone just because of that um, and because it's such a rare thing. So this movie does... And there's a lot of stuff here too. Like not just the stuff that we've already said, but there's other things thrown into the mix too that kind of give it notoriety. Like... Another thing in the movie is the NYU professor that goes and finds the footage is played by a guy named Robert Kerman. You might not recognize that name, but he's also known as uh, Richard Bola, or R. Bola, and he is one of the most famous male porn stars of all time, and he stars in one of the most well-known pornographic movies ever made, Debbie Does Dallas. He's actually the guy who does Debbie in the, the movie. The football player. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, well, he's the, he's the teacher. No, that's right, the uh, teacher, yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, it so that adds another aspect to it, and hard to believe, and Joe Bob touched on this on the show, this was actually his way of going towards the mainstream. <laughs> so he's going to do Cannibal Holocaust. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty clear he had no idea what the fuck he was getting into right. anyways. <laughs> Um, but, still, but nonetheless, yeah. he ended up being in one of the most infamous. He's in two of the most infamous films yeah, right. of all time. Um, hey, so that's another. Yeah, it's another interesting aspect. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Robert Kerman passed away a few years ago. Uh, but I did have the opportunity to speak with him on multiple occasions. He was a super nice guy, uh, was really a down-to-earth guy, but was also a serious actor and kind of resented his time in the adult industry because it ruined his chance at a legitimate career, uh, which he certainly wanted. He was a stage actor and a very good one at that. So uh, I thought that that you know, bared some mentioning as well because this, this movie is really uh, uh, one of a kind uh, in you know, all the aspects that we're speaking about. I don't know too many films where you could say, you know, like it has such important benchmarks in filmmaking as it started subgenres. It features music that's among the best ever put in anything. Um, it also stars one of the most infamous porn stars of all time. And it has a ton of real animal death and horrible violence on screen that is not really matched in much of anything ever made. So... You know, those reasons alone make it more than an, an important film. Yeah, we, we said, dude, it's one of those movies where you've got your classic bros, you know, the stereotypical jocks or something like that. They're like, oh, I could watch anything. It's like, all right, motherfucker, let's let's put you in front of Cannibal Holocaust and, and see how you react to this one. Um, yeah, so, yeah, we, we challenge the audience, dude. If you guys haven't seen it, uh, you know, hit us up on, uh, on our Twitter and in our email and, you know, Let's talk about it for, for those of you that don't, you know, you're here and Ed and I talk about it for the first time. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's a really cool movie. It's it's the great equalizer, as I always say. Like, yeah, good you know, call. whenever people go into a movie and they they think they're going to do the mystery science theater treatment on something because it's going to be campy, you know, old bullshit to them, and then they get this. And I've literally seen people walk out of a theater showing it. The, oddly enough, uh, when I first started dating my girlfriend, uh, the first movie we ever went to see was a double feature of Cannibal Holocaust and Cannibal Ferox. And yeah, that was uh, 11 years ago. So, you know, it, it kind of shows you either either people are going to be completely outraged by it and not be able to watch it, or they're going to go into it and give it a shot. And uh, they, I'm not saying you're going to watch it again, uh, but you're certainly going to get something out of it because it's not just a, a normal movie. It's definitely a visceral experience. So it's an experience. If you, want an, if you want an experience from a movie, uh, check out Cannibal Holocaust. It's available streaming on Shudder. You can watch it with or without Joe Bob uh, if you so choose. And also, because I really like them as a company, um, you can get it on Blu-ray. It's available on Amazon and stuff like that. Uh, there's a fantastic three-disc Blu-ray that includes the soundtrack from an awesome company called Grindhouse Releasing. Everything they do is fucking collection-worthy. Um, so if you're interested or if you've seen it or if you think you might want to check it out again, uh, pick up a copy on Blu-ray. I know the company will definitely appreciate it. They do amazing stuff. <laughs> and I'll so. give our own what's real disclaimer as well, just talking about it. Um, you know, I could speak for you too, I think, on this, Hey Ed, because I, I know you so well. Like we're, we're both animal lovers and we do not condone uh, uh-huh. the use of the death of real animals. You know, it kind of is what it is. And, um, you know, even if you want the experience and you are that big of an animal lover and you're like, fuck that, but want the experience, uh, do you know, just do, a, do look away when those scenes are on? I don't know. Well, no, I definitely here's, do. Here's, you know? Here's a really cool thing too, and it feeds it feeds into exactly what I was just talking about. That Blu-ray that Grindhouse Releasing put out, you can actually watch what they call the cruelty-free version oh, uh, with all the animal death uh, removed from the movie. So if it's too much for you, uh, you can watch it that way. But um, even coinciding with what you just said, I'm definitely an animal lover. I do not condone uh, the killing of animals on film just for a movie. Uh, I will say that the animals that were killed in this picture were also fed to natives. So it wasn't just senseless death, even though some of the killings in the movie are extremely cruel. Um, but I highly recommend that the very first time you watch it, you watch it uncut. It's important to the overall aspect of what the film is trying to say. Um, And it's not supposed to be a fun, enjoyable experience either. That's part of it. It's supposed to be grueling. It's supposed to be rough uh, because it just further uh, hammers home the point that the movie's trying to make in the first place. So, And I also believe in creative freedom for directors and writers and creators too. So, you know, I'm not really into the censorship thing either. That's what I was going to ask. Diodato passed away years ago, correct? He's not still alive. Mm -mm. He's still alive. Yeah, he's still alive. Yep. Oh, awesome. He must be pretty old. Yeah, I think he's in his, uh, probably his 80s. Um, okay. He's been trying to make uh, sequels and and kind of shoot-offs to Cannibal Holocaust for a decade or so. One day on the podcast, I'll have to explain to everybody uh, in a, when we do some story time shit. Uh, and I'll leave this as a cliffhanger here. Um, but I believe that I'm solely responsible for a Cannibal Holocaust sequel that was being planned at one time um, for not happening. And I'm not joking. 
um, being dead 100% serious, I believe I am the sole reason why this did not happen. And I will explain that on a further episode of the podcast down the road. It's a really cool story. Um, and I know you know the story already, but, yeah. uh, but yeah, that's something that I promise eventually on the podcast, I will explain to you guys, uh, especially for those who haven't heard it yet. Um, it's a cool story and uh, it's something that I kind of pat myself on the back for because, uh, I really didn't want to see a sequel to cannibal Holocaust. <laughs> yeah. Especially <laughs> even though I love the movie. Yeah. yeah. I, but, uh, but moving along on the show, uh, we got guys, as usual, we have a really great show planned for you guys. Uh, we're going to be talking about a really cool documentary after we take the break uh, called A Man in His Shoes, all about the uh, the Jordan phenomenon. It was a Vice documentary that was on a couple weeks ago uh, that me and the Jay are going to look at. Of course, we're going to talk part two of the Lance Armstrong uh, documentary, the 30 for 30 that ESPN had on Sunday night. On Thursday Night Prime, as we have already promised, we're going to review from 1992 the Rutger-Hauer vehicle split second and uh, a special announcement, kind of. Um, no goofs or goofs this week. We have something uh, a little bit more uh, relevant to the time that we're going to do, and we felt it was a little bit appropriate to do it that way. So stick with us, guys. We will be back right after this message on the What's Real podcast with a Man and His Shoes. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be right, right back right after this. Hey, everyone. This is Jared from the What's Real podcast, here to talk about ChurchillPictures.com. This newly revamped website is the home of the Pittsburgh-based production company, Churchill Pictures. It contains numerous original videos, including film trailers, documentaries, comedy sketches, and the entire library of the infamous Backyard Wrestling League, UCW. Check it out today. We are Churchill Pictures. Established from the bond of two childhood friends, we envision creating visual content that is completely original, thought-provoking, and most importantly, entertaining. Churchill Pictures. Picture the possibilities. Hey, it's Jared from the What's Real Podcast. I'm here to talk about the independent feature film Deference by Churchill Pictures. Bruno De Macy works for the most feared crime boss in the city while his best friend Polly Fusco gets himself in debt with an Irish gangster and needs his help. As Bruno attempts to rise in the ranks while running an underground gambling operation, Polly continues to work as a card hustler and becomes a marked man. The two find themselves in the middle of a street war between the Italians and the Irish. You can stream Deference today. Go to churchillpictures.com. Click the tab Featured. Go to the Deference page. It is available here to rent or own. Deference. When tradition fades away, order preserves respect. churchillpictures.com And we're back here on the podcast, and as I mentioned before we went to break, we are going to be talking about a brand new documentary that came out just a couple of weeks ago on Vice TV uh, and also on the Viceland Network titled A Man and His Shoes. Uh, This documentary is a two-hour documentary all about the social, cultural, and racial significance of the iconic Air Jordan sneaker. Um, if you guys follow the show, you know me and the Jay are both sneakerheads, and uh, you know we even talked about sneakers a little bit at the top of the show, and uh, we both thought that this would be something cool to talk about on the show as well, and uh, it was a little bit different than I thought. Um, basically, the movie kind of explores the the marketing uh, into the billion dollar company, uh, the dark side of the shoes, um, and of course, there's a bunch of archival footage and. 
stuff like that. Uh, returning from the nostalgia of the 80s and 90s hip-hop scene and kind of capture uh, America's love affair uh, with consumer capitalism and celebrity culture, which the Jordan sneaker and Michael Jordan in general uh, was a big part of. Um, but this was a little bit different than what I was kind of expecting. Um, they kind of go into you know the very beginning of the Jordan sneaker, which we've even talked about here on, on previous podcasts. Um, where Michael Jordan went in and made a deal with Nike, and it was something that really wasn't supposed to happen because Nike was just a running shoe company previously. Um, Jordan wanted to make a deal with Adidas, um, who at the time was kind of in turmoil as a company, and they really weren't in in a situation where they could put out a signature sneaker and give uh, the appropriate attention to Michael Jordan that he was looking for uh, from a marketing perspective. Um, Converse was the big shoe at the time for the NBA, and all of the mo- most of the major players, anyway, uh, were wearing them, uh, but not Michael Jordan. So he signed a deal with Nike, and the very first shoe that they ever came out with are shoes that are affectionately known now as the Band Jordan ones, uh, and they went with the uh, kind of marketing scheme that uh, you know they came out with these shoes. And before Michael Jordan even got to wear them in a game, the NBA banned them. Uh, Now, what they didn't want you to know is that they were banned because the NBA had strict uh, uniform color restrictions. Uh, They had to wear a certain amount of color with the jerseys, and they had to match uh, the uniform that the team wore. And these, uh, these Jordan ones had too much black in them. And that was the reason why they were banned. Uh, But Nike kind of got into everybody's minds that the reason why they were banned is because they made you so much better at basketball, which ended up being a huge uh, marketing ploy for Nike, and it worked. Because the Jordan 1s literally couldn't, you know, they were flying off the shelves. They couldn't stock them enough. And that's how much of a big deal these shoes were. Um... You know, at the time, sneaker culture wasn't a thing. So the fact that a new product could hit the streets like that and people would go nuts about it not only just showed the strength of Michael Jordan's name and his ability as a player, but it also kind of showed the very first uh, example of Nike's marketing machine. And that's what's so cool about all this stuff and doing stuff even specifically for the podcast because as much as we know, and, and like you had mentioned, we've we've covered uh, a lot of this already. Because um, you know, even just going into, uh, of course, the Last Dance, because um, there was big portions about that that had kind of side stories about the Jordan shoes and things. And one of our first big sneakerhead episodes uh, for the podcast, well, we kind of discussed it. And through all that, there's still so much more to learn. And um, like you were saying, hey, and I kind of kind of knew. That marketing side of, of, of it when they were first pushing the Jordans, that they, the shoes actually make you a better athlete, that actually make you play better. But yep. when it's really like hammered home and you kind of see the different angles, it's kind of that much more eye-opening and that much more interesting for me. And, and so that was like a cool thing, um, you know, off the bat towards the beginning of it that kind of sucked me in. It was like, you know, seeing that, that side of it and – like you had said, that that which causes them to just fly off the shelves. And they had all the statistics up. They were like, yeah, we're making this deal with Nike. And they basically were expecting us to sell 3 million shoes in two years or whatever it was. And they yep. sold like, like – It was like 125 million. <laughs> something in like – it just 
just completely blew it away. Yeah, and it uh, it kind of put Nike on the path to becoming the company that we all know today because there's no doubt, I think, in anybody's mind at this point that Nike is the biggest shoe company uh, in the world, especially for athletic shoes. So uh, not only does this documentary take a look at that, but then it started to take a look at the dark side of it. Um, and a lot of that started originally uh, with the release of the Jordan 3. Uh, the Jordan 3 was the shoe that uh, was announced to the country in the world uh, with the famous Mars Blackman ads uh, with Spike Lee playing his character Mars Blackman from the movie She's Gotta Have It. And these commercials blew everything up. Um, that, this is those, made it cultural. Yeah, those commercials made the Air Jordan uh, a household name. And especially with the Air Jordan showing up in Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing in a scene that's become culturally relevant, um, the Jordan sneaker became a status symbol in the United States. And because of that, of course, it was causing a lot of violence people getting robbed for their shoes. That was one of the first things I remember even as a kid. Uh, I remember, obviously, the Jordan sneakers coming out and being a large deal, and everybody wanted them. Uh, People were just obsessed with anything Michael Jordan, period, at the time. Um, And then, shortly thereafter, that being a thing, there was a lot of reports of people being robbed and murdered for their shoes. And this documentary uh, kind of looks into that on a closer level, of showing people, you know, their personal cases of loss where someone in their family was murdered for a pair of sneakers. Now, as yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry, Hale. No, go ahead. I was just gonna, I was gonna say, as as much of a interesting documentary as it was, um, I just did not uh, expect them to go in this direction at all. And I just wanted to say that now while you're at this spot, because it, it kind of like to me did a whole 180. And as negative as the material is, because, again, like so many things, it's reality. It's what happened. And we'll get in further detail of the whole thing. But I, uh, it kind of made it a better story overall for me than just like we always say, the kind of fluff piece kind of situation. Absolutely. And I, I thought that's actually what the strength of the, of the documentary itself was. Is I mean, the one thing, I, and I kind of noticed this right off the bat. I don't know if you thought about this at all. But I'm watching the documentary, and I didn't really know where it was going. You know, obviously, I didn't see it before. And uh, once I noticed that there was absolutely no involvement from Michael Jordan, from Nike, or really the NBA, because they didn't show a lot of game footage in this and stuff, um, that I realized the direction this was going to go in. Because you know how that goes. If if it makes Michael Jordan look bad, he's not going to participate. Same thing with Nike. Um, I knew that they were going to kind of touch on some of the more negative stuff, but at that point, I was kind of expecting it. I just didn't know how they were going to go about it. And, you know, you can't have one side without the other as far as this goes. Now, me and Jared, as you guys know, if you listen to the podcast, we are both, you know, consumers of Jordan products, uh, specifically the shoes. Um, But one goes with the other. Like, so... On one hand, we both like Jordan sneakers. We both admired Michael Jordan growing up. Um, we both like the way he plays the game. Um, we were 100% in the demographic that was completely marketed to for years uh, by Nike and Michael Jordan. But with that being said, um, 
I also don't feel like Nike is really responsible for these things happening. Um, there's a whole long list of economical and socio-political reasons why things like this happen that we probably shouldn't get into on the show here. Um, but, you know, everybody has a hand in it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying Nike should be completely absolved of all this because I've seen situations in the past where Nike exacerbates the situation. Whenever you make shoes that are extremely limited, you only put them out in certain places, and you have people showing up, waiting in line at a shoe store, paying $100 for a pair of shoes that the moment when they leave, they're worth $4,000. Yeah, that's going to cause a problem for people. People might get robbed for it, just like somebody might get robbed walking down the street wearing a Rolex. Um, You know, symbols of wealth and prominence bring that type of, you know, attention. It just is what it is. I mean, if you have a better chance of being robbed if you d- drive a BMW down the street than you do if you drive a Toyota. That's just how the world is. So you take a chance when you do that, and the good comes with the bad. You know, Jordan sneakers may give a lot of inspiration to people, might be good basketball shoes for people, might represent something more than just themselves to people. But on that other aspect, you get a lot of bad things that come from that. Yeah, like you said, it's a very convoluted and just straight-up gray area. There's a lot of factors that go into it, and there's different pieces of blame to go to different areas. And and again, I I love how they explored this because it's it's not the the funnest thing in a shoe documentary to go to and realize because they actually have – uh, the fa- a family involved of a young man that was murdered due to his sneakers, and it's it's in great detail. They show the crime scene, they show him shot and crashed, and that was that was brutal. That was that was rough to watch. I did not expect that um, within this documentary when I first started it, but again, it's the reality of it. And the the filmmaker is is just telling that side of the story and the consumerism aspect of it. And I love that they explain that too, hey Ed, because I know me and you have spoke about that personally as sneakerheads, as at the the top of the podcast talking about some recent buys to the sneaker app, is the supply demand and how certain shoes are um, more limited. And they explore that in the documentary. Like why, you know, if kids are getting shot over these, why not make more? And and they answer that because like, you know, certain ones will just get stuck on the shelves. And of course, like anything, it comes back to money and they lose money on, on it if they don't do it in the right way. So there, there's both sides to it. And and not to digress, um, you know, from the dark area, but I just, I just didn't want to forget to bring this up in the conversation of, on this documentary. But they're interviewing uh, Sonny Vaccaro, and Sonny Vaccaro was one of the guys that, like, he he actually came up with the original logo for the Air Jordans, like the yeah. wings. Yep. And it is is heavily involved, and you know, was 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 great in this in this piece. Um, but I just, you know, it's like a Jared moment that I, I wanted to bring up to you here on the podcast, hey, Ed. So as you mentioned, they bring up the Mars character that Spike Lee plays um, that became a huge part of the commercials. And people in this documentary will say that without Spike Lee and this Mars character, the Air Jordans aren't what they are. Yeah, like, I that agree. helped elevate them to, to the level that they they were. We kind of alluded to that earlier with the, the cultural impact and stuff, and in the that famous scene from Do the Right Thing, where the guy gets his, his Jordan scuffed by a, a white dude with a Celtics jersey and all that. And Sonny Vaccaro is um, talking about the part 
where this is getting brought up and, and where this is gaining prominence within these commercials. And if you're not familiar with the um, the original movie that the Mars character was in, it's basically this movie where, where three guys are trying to get the affections of one woman. Yeah, it's like and a love triangle movie kind of A thing. love triangle thing, yeah. Love Square, I guess it would be. Yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so long, long Jared Rant short, he the Mars character finally hooks up with her, and he refuses to take off the Jordans when yep. he's making love to her. And they're talking about this, and this is what, the other reason I brought it up. Sonny Vaccaro says in this quote, because, you know, like that's what, what changed a lot of this. He won't take his Jordans off when he's boffing this girl. Yeah, boffing. And I remember like, did that. Did he say boffing? <laughs> yeah, boffing. <laughs> so that's my new one. I'm going to say that to my wife. Like, you're trying to boff. Dude, it's and you know what? They actually made a good point here, too. Um, but up until that point, sneakers were sneakers. Like, oh, I got Converse sneakers or I got some Adidas sneakers. He was like, that was when things changed. Like, at that point, they were just Jordan sneakers. But, like, now they become Jordans. Like, so when someone says Jordans in a sentence, you, without saying anything about shoes, you know what they're talking about. It's exactly. kind of like... Whenever you use a tissue, people say, hey, grab me a Kleenex. It's There's no such thing as a Kleenex. That's a brand name. It's a tissue. Just like even in the South, where if somebody wants a cola, they'll ask for a Coke. Even if it's a Pepsi, they just call it Coke. So it's like certain brand names become synonymous for an item. And that sort of happened with Jordans. Because Jordans were different than just shoes or sneakers to most people. They were on another level. And that was the beginning of how that even got started. Yeah, and you said, I mean, that's that's what creates the wealth from this, and that demand is when something goes, you know, just beyond basketball, even beyond Michael Jordan, and becomes culture, and is Absolutely. ingrained. And in, you know, um, you know, we'll probably even get into more of this later in the podcast, but um, you know, specifically African American culture, and you know that that African American woman. Um, I don't have her name in front of me. I apologize. I forget. But she was really good. She was a big part of this uh, documentary. And she said in there, she's like, black people have always been cool, you know, with music, yeah. you know, with rock and roll and with like she, she went on. And it's a great point to make, you know, when 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 black culture gets ingrained into like the middle class and upper middle class white culture kind of thing. And that's a yeah. huge aspect to all of this. And it probably happened on its largest scale. In that time period from the 90s with the emergence of hip hop, with NBA and Michael Jordan becoming more visible, like the NBA was more popular at that time than it ever was, um, it, even except for probably today where it might be more popular around the world. Um, but that's there was a lot of things coming from black and African-American culture at the time uh, that was just exploding into the mainstream. So it was just becoming huge, and it was the first time that you were seeing uh, like African-American cultural figures and things being linked in with big corporate American business. So you know that was starting to become a, a turning point there as well, uh, where black athletes were being shown as more than just somebody, someone peddling shoes or a product. Yeah, they um, said Jordan broke that glass ceiling where he was like the good-looking, handsome um, you know, black athlete hanging with uh, like like these white kids in these commercials and things. Like he just became obsessed, you know, um, accepted by white culture, and that was like one of the first times that happened. And um, they also said to, to go with that that 
his play on the court actually, you know, because if, if his play on the court wavered or something like that, that could have had a big impact on on the rise of, of the Air Jordan brand and things. But the fact that he had the career that he did on top of all this other stuff that we're talking about off the court, it's just all one big mix of all these different factors that, that just make it that perfect storm to, to become a billion-dollar industry. Well, and it's crazy nowadays looking back on it because – you know, basically when we were growing up, every year there was a new Jordan sneaker. There might be different colorways, but there was just a brand new sneaker. By the late 90s, they had an offshoot Jordan brand where they made their own sneakers. And nowadays we're in a situation where they still release a brand new Jordan sneaker every year, but then they release tons of colorways of the old retro styles. So they have 34 different uh, Jordan yeah. sneakers that they can go back and remix and put new colors on and everything. And that's kind of what the shoe industry's become now as one of the most popular sneakers currently today in 2020 is the Jordan 1, a shoe Jordan that was originally released in 1985. Not only are they able to double dip, they're 34 dipping. <laughs> Easy. Um, and that's what they said too. That was one another part of it um, You know, back when, when they were first coming into prominence where it was like the first shoe it had the the nike symbol on the brand when was it the jordan two or three the, the two that didn't need the swoosh you know yep. that design that didn't see, even need the swoosh on it just as a side note i think this is kind of funny but uh those who know about sneakers will understand what i'm saying here uh the jordan two is sort of the redheaded stepchild of the jordans especially the the glory years because it was a sneaker that Jordan 1 didn't really like. Um, two, he didn't really wear it much because that was the season where he hurt his ankle and missed pretty much the whole season except for maybe like, I think it was like 19 games or 16 games or something like that. Um, and the shoe itself, though, is crazy. This is the shit people don't realize. It wasn't a popular shoe. People don't really have a great affinity for it. Some people do, but it's nowhere near the affinity that people have for the 1s or the 3s or stuff like that. Now, that shoe, though, is crazy. It was made with Italian leather. That's like none of the other Jordans can say that. It was made with upgraded materials and, like, you just stuff at the time that you just did not see a a normal main-marketed shoe company making with their shoes. So, uh, you know, it's pretty clear that, that Nike realized really early on what they had with Jordan and the Jordan sneaker and they were bridging out to try and do something different, and it didn't work, but then their best period ever came right after that with the three and beyond because once Tinker Hatfield, the shoe designer, got involved, him and Michael Jordan were clicking for years, and he was the guy that pretty much created the most legendary Jordans of all time. So it's amazing how that worked out. While we're on the twos, did they ever re-release those? Yeah, there's been tons of re-releases of the twos okay. through the years. I wasn't sure. I haven't really seen the twos. Um, it's they're just not, they're just never brought, never broke that ceiling of being popular. I guess even even with being the redheaded stepchild. Well, you know how like the ones, like the design of the ones, is actually like a timeless sneaker, kind of like how the Chuck Taylor is. Like anybody could wear it. It could always look good, no matter what you wear it with. Like yeah, people it's just wear the, them the with designs suits. too unique or something. Well, the two is just so out there. It's it's the yeah, very first I mean. Nike sneaker with no swoosh on it. It's a, It looks like a dated Italian sneaker. You know what I mean? Like, it kind of looks See, I feel like, like I like that, like, when we're talking about it. That's why I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to check out some twos because my weird ass, of course, I like the weird one. 
Yeah, I would like, but it's re- the only thing that's weird with me is like I love the original colorways and Jordans, uh, but the two is one that I don't like the original colorway. Like I like the oddball colored twos way more than I like any of the original colorways on them, and they only yeah, came gotcha. out in white. They didn't come out in black. And speaking of this, it's funny because going into this, I, I knew they were going to talk about. You know, obviously Jordan and the rise of, of the Jordan brand and the creation of the shoe. But I thought the, the crescendo and like the main arc of it all was going to be like us that we're talking about. And that's why I bring it up here is that of the collector. And they do get in that a bit. Um, you know, they visit that that one dude that has the, what he believes is the biggest um, Jordan collection in North America. Uh, so that was a really cool part. I, of course, got a kick out of that because he also had like Gatorade from – the, the 90s and all kinds of stuff. Wheaties boxes. He's like, yeah, I want to drink that Gatorade. It looks it looks like a nuclear liquid from the Simpsons or something. Well, and then remember too the the dude that had the the pair of Jordans that he wore, uh, with the where his foot was fucked up. Yeah, remember because he has like the ripped pair and it's a one of one yep. pair and you know they kind of get into that. They they could have I thought got into it a little bit more to kind of show you. More yeah, of the rare I mean. pieces and stuff. Because, I mean, I feel yeah. like that's part of the legacy of it, too, is there's there's literally pairs of Jordans out there that were friends and family, uh, and they only made, like, 11 pairs of them, and they're literally worth, like, $30,000, which yeah, is insanity. Because cool. I can tell you, I pulled up a um, uh, an interview that the director, Yemi Bamero did, mm-hmm. and, you know, I'll just paraphrase a little bit of it, but he said... He wanted to originally make a film about Air Jordan collectors and was interested in that obsessive nature, like the collector element to it. And it was like anything, and I could tell you that too, and, and you're familiar, hey Ed, with filmmaking, man. You just end up going in a different direction a lot of time, um, you know, especially with documentaries. And so he ended up going a different route. And when he was asked if there was a specific turning point that led into the shift, he said, not really. He just thinks that the canvas didn't feel that big, making a story about just collectors. He's like, I think once um, you see one or two collectors, you get the idea that they're deeply passionate. You know, you kind of see the shoes they have. And that's when he's kind of started to explore different foundations that built the whole story upon. So so I get that too. But, but like you said, I, I wish they would have went into some more of the, the rarer ones at least. Um, I think they're – they kind of fell a little bit short with the collector side, which is probably you know just my own personal preference as a collector as well. Um, but the overall documentary was really good, you know, ending with um, you know like we said, getting the, the the dark stuff and and interviewing the mother who lost her son and things like that. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. I mean, I wish there would have been a little bit more from the collector aspect of things. That's again, like you said, just me personally. Um, but I understand that that doesn't necessarily appeal to the wider audience and that the story that they told most likely would. Um, right, I get it. And it was well-paced. Exactly. Like, I thought it was a good documentary. It's just not made specifically for people like us. But I'm glad that I watched it. I thought it was really good. And I and I obviously urge anybody listening, if you want to check it out, it is available. It's It's been uh, showing repeatedly on Viceland. And it's available on Vice TV and on their their YouTube channel as we speak. So if you want to go through and watch that, it's called A Man and His Shoes. Uh, I definitely would recommend it. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, it's great. Um, Like I said, the best way I could surmise it was at the the outset, really, that I was saying where I'm, like, obsessed with this world, know a ton about it, and I still learned a lot. And, you know, definitely wasn't expecting the, the dark side of it and 
you know, like you mentioned, even questioning Nike as a company and Michael Jordan specifically as an individual on the kind of controversial aspect, if it's their place to step out and do something of a significant amount of young people getting murdered over the shoes. Absolutely, man. So uh, that's a man in his shoes, guys. So we're going to take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to be taking a look at the ESPN Part 2 for 30 for 30 on Lance Armstrong. So stick around, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. Hey guys, this is Jared with the What's Real Podcast. I'm here to talk about The Unsung Movie from Churchill Pictures. The Unsung is a brand new independent feature film from Churchill Pictures in association with Cut and Run Productions that is currently on the festival circuit and will be streaming and available on DVD and Blu-ray in 2020. You can check it out at www.theunsungmovie.com. In an old industrial town, a homeless man roams the streets looking for a place to rest. When a young girl is in danger, Eric runs to her aid and saves her from harm. She leads him to a homeless village where he is inspired by the friendships he makes there. Through newspapers and a radio, Eric learns about a series of murders taking place in town. Inspired by the comic books he reads, Eric creates an alter ego and attempts to get involved with the investigation. Hope lives in the shadows. Check out and follow the progress of the unsung movie through churchillpictures.com and theunsungmovie.com. And we're back here on the show. Thanks for sticking around with us. And as I mentioned before we went to break, it is time for me and the Jay to talk a little bit of the latest 30 for 30 on ESPN. This is part two on disgraced cyclist Lance Armstrong. And we talked about part one here last week. And part two was weird, man. Um, This one was just kind of wallowing in what a piece of shit Armstrong was to me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) the first headline real quick just because it's good at the outset here is um, that I read is though he treated people in a despicable manner throughout his cycling career Armstrong wouldn't change anything (laughs) yeah and that's another thing I was going to mention when he said that I'm like it's it's like you know like okay say like a child right they learn their lessons throughout life so it's like they might you know learn not to put something on that ledge because they'll drop it. Like, okay, that's a lesson, right? But, like, you would kind of hope that, like, the lesson they learn by sticking their finger in the light socket is one that they're not going to repeat. You know, like, now, if they drop something off that ledge, it's like, well, it sucks, but it's not the end of the world. It's like, that's the one you don't really understand, and that's kind of how I felt about Lance Armstrong. Like, I don't feel bad that you went through any of this shit because you deserved everything that came to you and you're still a pompous dick because, it, and they show it in the documentary, like, a dude, this dude went through all this terrible shit after he fucked up his own career, right? He's still married, he still has kids, he clearly still has money and still lives a really fucking nice life. So, what's the lesson here other than, like, Cheaters never win except for when they do, and then they have to like recount for some of the shit that they did, and then generally walk off in the sunset having more than most people do. You're you're exactly right, dude. You hit the nail on the head because he would be exactly where he is at now anyway, because he would definitely be retired from cycling by now. He has young kids that from the documentary seem successful, like his youngest son's like a beast. I was like, dude, that's his kid? Like I wouldn't be able to tell if he's like 36 or 20. He's yeah. 20. He's like a, a college football player. Um, uh, I digress. But 
beautiful fiance. He is a guest an analyst for NBC on the Tour de France. He has the number one cycling podcast. So he's still in his world. They show him jogging. He's still in good shape. Like you said, he's making money. It's like, dude, you're pretty much where you would have been anyway through all this. And there, there's a, a, a very good chance that you, you shouldn't be possibly, you know, yeah. and, and could have been seeing jail time and stuff. So for, for his disdain still, because like that's like he he died on his sword toward the end. And we're kind of all over it right now. But but yeah, I mean, that's um that, that's how I, I see it, too. It's just, just kind of this uh, this crazy aspect that he has in, in perspective that like, you know, like they all screwed me. They all killed my career. And you're kind of just like, what? Well, and I don't like he's the total antithesis of the butt. If you know what I mean, right? Like he's like, yeah. oh yeah, he goes on these positive rants, and then he says, "What?" Goes yeah, on he, but, like the one that really pissed me off is one where he's like, you know, I lied when I shouldn't have. He explains why he lied and how he made it worse, and you know, I probably should have did this here, but I did this, and I was, and he explains himself, which I have no problem with. Like he was kind of like, you know, like oh, I could have came clean here, but I was basically like, if I would have did that, then I wouldn't, I would have missed out on the seven million dollars that i got for my sponsorship for this and blah 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 and then he'll say like you know but i lied about this and i lied there and you know i should have did this but we all lie (laughs) and then he just look like gives this look like come on bro like we all do this and it's like that's different though like that that's the thing with levels in life like there's a big difference between me saying, oh, sorry, the J, missed your phone call yesterday, bro. I was asleep. Meanwhile, I was playing a video game and just didn't want to answer the phone. Then it is if I'm like, yeah, man, that really sucks that your wife got into that car accident and died. But meanwhile, I cut her brakes. Like, see exactly. the difference in lying there? throughout this. Yeah. And that's and what it, liars are. And it's like. hypocrites. And, and all it feels like is he's super pissed off that he's been robbed of a legacy that he essentially robbed himself and cycling of anyways. Single-handedly. Yes. And, and well, and, and on top of it too, the bodies that he left laying everywhere. Like there's a big, there's <laughs> exactly. a big section of the, the documentary, uh, this part two about the big Lance Armstrong interview that he did with Oprah that I think a lot of people, that's something that I vividly remember. Like I might not have watched it or I might have, it wasn't a big deal to me, but I remember the ads for it and it was a big deal. Um, and then just seeing the way that that went down. So this dude had the balls to go on Oprah, right? Which is like, it makes him look like he's a, an honorable dude. Like I'm going to, she could ask me whatever she wants and I'm going to answer this stuff. Honestly, but how does he go about doing it in his personal life? Well, he didn't tell anybody he was doing it. He just fucking went. So, like, he didn't even he have like the did balls. He did everything wrong. Other than winning uh, the championships, like, yeah. he did everything wrong. Because that's, that's the thing I was seeing from that. He's, like, doing this Oprah thing and his whole management team and all these people that, that work from him and it's their careers and their jobs. They're like, wait, wait, you're, you're setting it up? You're going to meet her? He's like, no, I'm going to do the interview. They're like, what? Like, why didn't you tell us? Like, what are you doing? And they're like, that's not a good idea. (laughs) You can tell that he's not big on accountability. Like, he's fine with going on Oprah and and pouring his heart out to the world, right? But he doesn't have enough foresight or even 
respect for people in his life to go and be like, hey, I'm doing this thing about Oprah. They might bring your name up. If they do, I'm probably going to have to say this. And I just wanted to let you know. Like, he wanted to get all the redemption without... Like, you ever see that thing that, like, people say, like... uh, It's a trope in movies now a lot of times where someone say they're like a recovering addict, right? And it's like the point in the story where they're like, yeah, man, this is going to be hard. And the person's like, what's going to be hard? You know, you've already quit drinking. You're doing really well for yourself. And they're like, well, no, in my 12 steps, now I've reached that step where I have to go and apologize to people that I wronged for the bad things that I've done. And, you know, you understand the reasoning behind something like that because it's it's helping a person recover from the, the bad shit that they've done. It, like, lets them get past it, right? Well, Lan- yeah. Lance wanted all that fucking redemption without that part, and that's bullshit because you at least got to show people that there's some remorse on your part for the horrible shit you've done. And then he goes on Oprah, and there was that writer... Uh, that he totally shit on years previous. Who, yeah, who Emma told, O'Reilly called yeah, her a whore. <laughs> yeah, and he just refused, even at that point on Oprah, how did he deal with it? He was like, oh, yeah, I, I just don't really want to talk about that. Yeah, he's like, I'm putting that down. I'm not picking that up. Yeah, and it's, it's like, like, fuck you. Yeah. You don't get to pick the, the fucking narrative here. You know, and that's exactly what he tried to do. He tried to even use Oprah for her outlet and then do it in a, his way. Like, I, it, oh my God. I can't even begin. I didn't like him to begin with, but I can't tell you how bad I hate this fucking guy after Yeah, he's this. pretty brutal. Like you Just, said, he leaves ugh. all these bodies in his wake and all his ex-teammates and stuff. And they asked the one dude, you know, one of his teammates, I forget specifically which one, but he's like, oh, I hated him. I hated him for years. He's like, but I had to let that go. Mm-hmm. And then there's Armstrong still, like you know, like I said, dying on his sword as as the last um, you know scene is up, just still saying how you know he goes on that tirade about his his friend that was the German cyclist and ended up in a psychiatric ward. How you know Germany and the German people fucked him over, and and he's this you know I don't know if you would say pariah or whatever, but like that he got fucked and none of these other dudes do, and, and, and he says you know and here I am, I'm the American version of that. And you know what? And I'm just taking a guess here because I don't know the timeline on all these guys that he mentioned on this documentary or what they did or, you know, when this stuff happened. But I'm sure some of these guys were disgraced before he had a career. Okay? Um, So there was a time where Lance Armstrong was the be-all, end-all in cycling. They talk about that in the documentary too. So... As the be-all, end-all, as the voice, as the guy, he could have went and helped as many of them as he possibly could. But remember, Lance Armstrong didn't give a fuck about any of these guys until he was also a pariah. So fuck him for that, because it's like, don't act like these people are important to you and you're offended over the shit that, you know, happened to them and how their careers were ruined. You didn't give a shit about that until your career was also ruined just like theirs, and now it's a thing. Yeah, and in this episode, they covered what you were looking for in the first episode with all the shit with his cancer diagnosis and Livestrong, and that stuff's brutal, because here he is acting like that, then they show footage of him with, like, little, you know, bald because of chemo cancer patient kids. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, man, and just like everything, man, it's not black and white it's very gray and we we said even last week we talked about peds pretty thoroughly 
PEDs don't single-handedly win you seven. Let me say that again, seven consecutive Tour de France's. I mean, that's year after year of going through the most grueling sporting event, dodging crashes. He's fending off these accusations. He's doing like blood bags and injections and all this crazy shit. Next thing you know, he's with like Matthew McConaughey running shirtless with uh, fucking what's her name? Dayton Cheryl Crow. <laughs> I'm just like, that's, that's the part that was entertaining to me just because it's a, a kind of proverbial shit show. In a lot of yeah. ways, you know, it's like all, all, you know, everything involved in that, you know, and there was that one footage just speaking of all of it um, that they said was like one of his like athletic career highlights where this dude crashes right in front of him. He veers off into like a cornfield. This is during the Tour de France, like gets through it without falling, gets back like onto the course and continues and end up winning. And like the people on there are like, yeah, I don't know how the hell he did that. Yeah, and I can so there's imagine a lot of, there's a lot of different things to it, and it it makes you wonder too, and like how much of the story are you actually seeing? Because you know there's stuff that didn't make this, oh, of um, course, and there's and you know there's people that wanted nothing to do with this, so. You know, like they even there was even the one part too that, and, and it kind of alluded to what I said earlier, uh, where the guy says, uh, you know. He could have really helped a lot of people, and he they they said that like he wouldn't come out and be like, "Oh, this guy sucks. Don't don't hire him." But he would kind of like become quiet about people. Like they'd be like asking him who would make a good commentator for NBC, and they're like, "What about that guy?" And it's like, "Oh, he might be pretty good." And what about him? Oh, he'd definitely be good. What about him? Like, oh, uh, uh. like. So that was his way of shitting on people he didn't want to have a job. Like, So he knew the power that he held in the sport and just continued to abuse it. And it, none of this was even remotely important to him until after the fact. So it just makes me hate the guy even more. It's It was really hard for me to watch both parts of these because I just don't like this fucking guy. He's completely detestable to me even to this day. I don't really want to see video of him enjoying his life with his family because I think he's a dick. And he took that away from so many people um, that it sucks watching him get to enjoy his life. I'll just be perfectly honest with you. I'm not saying he doesn't have a right to. I just don't really want to be witness to it. Maybe that's just me. Yeah, because as, as much as we say about you know the PEDs, like he had to put in the work. There's the whole other narrative of what if he doesn't? You know, what if he doesn't use uh, PEDs? What if he remained clean the whole time? I, I highly doubt, quite obviously, that he's winning seven consecutive Tour de France's, or as we on the What's Real podcast say, Tour de France. The Tour de France. Yeah, it's the Tour de France. I, I doubt it. You know what I mean? I don't know enough about the sport, nor do I care to know enough about the sport. What I do know about it is it's incredibly dirty, um, and not just with PEDs. I know there's a lot of... I seen something like a year ago or something that was about a guy who built bikes uh, for like a lot of these people and how the bikes were rigged and shit. So like, there's a lot of stuff here that is just not above board and to me it's a stupid thing anyway because it's like nascar to me like i'm the i don't i mean we all drive a car you know like i don't have any problem with people that ride bikes but it's also not a spectator sport to me it's not something i will ever sit around and watch um i'm not saying it's like a marathon is it hard as hell 
Like, is is running a marathon one of the hardest things a human being can do? Absolutely. I will give all the respect and credit yeah, to you have, people you have that the can do that shit. Yeah. But I would never want to watch someone do it, ever. I don't care enough to. Just like I'm sure there's a lot of shit, you know, like we talked about Cannibal Holocaust earlier in this episode. There's a lot of people that just hearing what that is would be like, I would never watch that. Nor do I care ever to. I don't want to challenge myself. I don't give a shit about anything you said in that that whole sequence. I would never fucking watch that. You're kind of a dick for doing it. Okay. Well, it's just funny because it, it kind of like you're used to even in documentaries, in truthful documentaries, they kind of give you the, the storytelling side of it and like a narrative that there's kind of redemption at the end. Yep. And I was kind of laughing because the end of this, just like I had said earlier, he just goes on like a heel promo yep. at the end. And just, he just has all this resentment towards the sport of cycling. But again, cause I was thinking this too, Hey Ed, cause you kind of had mentioned about his current financial status and you know, whatever. I don't care about what you make and this and that, but Considering, because they, they go through it in this doc, how much money he had to give out. I mean, five million alone to lose in that lawsuit. But even that was lucky because he could have owned a hundred million, as he called her called it uh, in the first episode, a nuclear situation. And he he got through all of that. It still seems like he's in a super nice house. And like I said, but my point is, it seems like he's still profiting, and his income's coming from the cycling industry. Because like I said, they they say in this, he's. On the, he's co-host of the number one cycling podcast, and he's a, a guest analyst for NBC. So it's like, dude, you're 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 so resentful and ripping on the sport of cycling, and you go on that that tirade about you know your your buddy and and, and like you had mentioned, hey Ed, and just to go in with with how you were saying, we don't know shit about this sport. He's just George Hincapi is is still celebrated, and for me here in America, George Hincapi is a piece of shit, and like. Um, you know, they ended up stripping Armstrong's name off the building. and I don't know, man. It's it's just all over the place. And, and, and that's what I took from it, man. I still thought for, for myself per- personally, I'm with you, like for 30 for 30s, this is absolutely not my cup of tea um, usually. But I did find it entertaining um, the, the first couple episodes. It's something that I probably won't ever go back and, and revisit, you yeah. know. Um, yep. But for the the first watch here, I mean, you know, I I think it just goes into, as you mentioned, just the fact that I didn't know a lot about this world. I didn't know too much uh, under the surface of Lance Armstrong that that this kind of covers. So that that made it interesting and entertaining to me in the end. But, um, you know, I'm with you at the end of the day. I just I just think that Lance Armstrong is I'm not going to go on a tirade on him and say a despicable human being piece of shit. The best way to put it, he's just a straight-up asshole. He's an mm-hmm. asshole. Yep. That's a good way of, of rounding it out. You know, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I think this is the best review I could kind of give of it. And it's I don't think it was poorly made, okay? It's not that at all. Um, it's just I think that if normal situation occurs here, like say I'm not doing this for the podcast, um, I might have watched part one. Um, but after part one, I don't. I would have been like, I'm skipping part two. I don't give a fuck about. Yeah, that I'm not guy. spending time with this guy's story. Yeah. yeah, and that's just that's. You know what? That's a really good way to put it because that's the problem. Like I don't like through the the last dance was so good because that's a poignant t- moment in time in a sport that we both care about and watch, uh, and 
it was interesting seeing the the history behind it, and it was fun spending time with Jordan and Pippen and all these guys talking about exactly. it. Exactly, we said, um, yeah, like, but I don't want to sit down with fucking Lance Arms. I don't like this guy for shit. So I don't. It was hard to spend four hours watching this uh, because it's like, like um, you, you just don't it, like the guy and you don't care about his fucking story because he's an asshole. It was the the last tidbit, and that's a pun, as you'll see as the storyteller filmmaker in me is, I kind of noticed that band-aid, like bandage on his finger, like earlier on. And oh, then yeah. And this scene, he has like a potato peeler. And he's like, oh, son of a bitch. And his fiance is like, what? And he like picks up his hand. He's bleeding fucking profusely everywhere. And like chipped, you know, chunked off the tip of his finger or something. Yep. And I'm like, immediately... this dude, you know, he, he should be goose or, you know, too bad we're not doing goose or goose this week. We can just put that in this segment. Yeah, it'd be a good candidate for it. I'll tell you that because it's yeah. like it was just like, he just weird... cut half his finger off. Yeah, as he doesn't react to it at all. So I'm like, <laughs> yeah. well, you're completely he has no a... feeling. Yeah, it's like, dude, what, you're a fucking android. Like he's like, oh no, we better call one of our friends that are doctors on Facetime. Like I'm like, I hate yeah. you. I hate you. Yeah. Fuck, this guy sucks. In so many ways, this guy just sucks. Uh, but yeah, you know, if you care about it, you might want to check it out. But if you think he's a detestable piece of garbage like we seem to, uh, you probably would want to skip over this one. Because I don't, like I said earlier, if it wasn't for the podcast, I probably wouldn't be watching this one either. Yeah, no, I felt for his son more than anything. His son seemed like pretty cool. Like he had to, he had that be a man moment. He's like, no, I'm going to go into school, you know, when everything was breaking and stuff like that. Yep. And that's what happens with, with people that act like this, man. It's like, dude, you got kids and shit. Like, it fucks and, up your whole life. This is like and your personality. It affects other people because you're a douchebag. Yeah. But, yeah, so that's 30 for 30, Lance Armstrong. Uh, <laughs> the cool thing is, though, is we've weathered the storm. Next week's is going to be much better as they're going to do one. Uh, it's called Like Water, and it's all about Bruce Lee. Yeah, and I know that's the one me and you both were like, oh, shit. So that's going to be a good one, and we're obviously going to cover that next week on the podcast. So stay tuned for that. You know That, that should be a lot more fun than this. I mentioned we had to get, get through the, the least interesting to us one, and that's what we did. Like it's a great point. We weathered the storm, and now we're, we're in the clear, man. Got Bruce Lee, and then um, – Will definitely be cool and entertaining, I'm sure, with the uh, the last one of, of this little chunk of series of 30s with McGuire and, and Sosa. That'll be a cool one, too. Definitely looking forward yeah. to that one. So uh, we're going to take a break and pay some bills. When we come back, it's time for Thursday Night Prime, guys. That's right. This time we're going to talk about Split Second from 1992 starring the infamous Rutger Hauer. So stick with us, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. Bayview Entertainment LLC is a full-service media company committed to acquire, develop, produce, market, and distribute audiovisual content. For over 15 years, Bayview made its name by being dedicated to releasing only the best programs in each category from some of the most trusted names in the field. Bayview's disc programming can be found throughout the country at all online suppliers plus fine brick-and-mortar retailers, as well as streaming video on demand at all major digital retailers and platforms. Bayview is honored to partner with Churchill Pictures LLC for the worldwide release of The Unsung. 
the newest feature film from Churchill Pictures. Follow details about the Unsung's upcoming release at churchillpictures.com and bayviewentertainment.com. And we're back here on the show, and it is that time once again as we do here every week on the podcast. It is time for Thursday Night Prime. And this week we're going to take a look at a movie from 1992 uh, starring none other than Rutger Hauer uh, called Split Second. Uh, Split Second's an interesting flick for a lot of reasons. Um, first off, this was kind of cool. It's directed by Tony Mainlam, uh, who's the same guy who made The Burning, which is a really cool slasher movie from 1981. Uh, Tom Savini did the special effects for it. It's a take on the Cropsy legend. And also uh, Jason Alexander, you know, uh, George from Seinfeld. And also yeah, so Ho- weird he's in that. Holly Hunter is in that as well. So if you guys can get a chance to check out The Burning, I highly recommend you do so. But, uh, but he actually directed this as well. Um, Split Second is a movie that we're all very familiar with <laughs> from the days of HBO um, and Rutger Hauer, who was like a legend on HBO at that time period. Um, but it's a really interesting sci-fi flick um, that takes place in this futuristic type state, I guess would be the best way. It's London, too. Um, but Harley Stone is the character that Rutger Hauer plays, and he's hunting a serial killer who murdered his partner and has haunted him ever since. He soon discovers that what he is hunting might not even be human. Um, it's also pretty well known that it takes place in uh, a futuristic London, as I said, that is essentially dealing with uh, all kinds of rain, so there's just water and shit everywhere. Um, but I gotta say, man... I remember really liking this movie, and one thing I didn't remember at all, um, and the movie's only 90 minutes, but Jesus Christ, man, I felt like I was watching this movie for four fucking hours when I watched it. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't get over it, like, I, because I remember really liking this one, and I'm like, God damn, this movie, they could have chopped off 60 minutes from this movie, and I would have been fine with it. My, my initial take on it, hey, Ed, like, you know how... Uh, Blade Runner, ironically, which which goes hand in hand with Rucker Howard, um, we we just passed it. It was what twenty nineteen. It takes place. Yep, I'm pretty sure Blade Runner. So it's it's like that weird aspects that movies in the future did to try to capture the future, you know. And like I don't think one of them ever is spot on for the year they try to depict. It ends up passing. This one might honestly be the closest because. It takes place in 2008 because the movie came out, what, 92? Yep. I think. Yep. So, and, you know, for us here in 2020, we're uh, 12 years ahead of this, but there was nothing too, like, futuristic about it. It just, it did have a, like, noir kind of look. And it's it's funny, too, again, bringing up 2020 with all kinds of uh, global warming talk going on. And that's kind of the premise at the beginning with the, the opening title kind of explains that due to global warming, the environment's all goofy and it's just been raining in London for like almost a year. So that's why like it has that, um, you know, wet scene, which, which gives a cool environment to the whole story. Yep. Uh, but like you said, like, um, you know, overall it, it dragged on a lot for sure. Um, it, it had a lot of the tropes that we look for, for Thursday night primers. You know, it had the, uh, the character actors, uh, Unlin Armstrong's in there. You know, he, he's a dude that's been in Braveheart and stuff. Yep. Um, Pete Pulseweight, of course, um, and of course the love interest Kim Cattrall, and Michael uh, from, J. Pollard you know, shows up here too as the rat. Yeah, catcher. Michael J. Pollard, the rat catcher, and uh, Kim Cattrall, um, 
being from Sex and the City and, and some solid 80s stuff. So, so yeah, the cast was there, um, you know, the usual character people. And the concept was somewhat cool. Like, they, they mentioned how it's kind of like um, Alien meets Predator in a way. Sort of, You know, yeah. it has the... The, the the sci-fi feel of that with like it's him hunting this this serial killer i will say that this movie was definitely influenced by blade runner i mean there's no doubt yeah. even with the look of stuff and shit that like they try, for sure there's a little wink wink there i think uh going on throughout that's what it was hey ed you nailed it it's it was uh one thing i read was blade runner meets alien that's what it was and um the the comedy uh in this one is we always look for Straight up comedy or unintentional comedy in the Thursday Night Primes, it's usually unintentional, was Rucker Howard, of course, this like hardened detective of the future that's all begudgeoned over the death of his partner. And he had an affair with his partner's wife that was Kim Cattrall's character, and he left her, and he's all grizzled. And he gets partnered with this like proper British goof. And that dude kind of steals the show. Just because, I mean, he does what he needs to do, just being as a. A proper British goof. Yeah, it's involved in all this. Th- but see, here's my problem with it: is I wanted more from that. Like it wasn't like I wanted him to be the comic relief, and they made Rutger Hauer the comic relief, which was weird. Um, and yeah. of course, too, the Rutger Hauer character in this movie is a chain smoking, coffee addicted sugar addict. <laughs> so he's always smoking, drinking coffee, or like eating candy and shit. And, and, and then and then and then gun addict because he just well yeah that too obviously and they, they make this whole big deal over this huge gun he has like every even Kim Cattrall's like what's that well dude the the it's funniest the funniest part to me in the whole movie was the the scene where he uh, the the police captain finds the gun. And he's like, what the hell are you doing with this? And he's like, you know, like doing the normal, like, well, what do you think I'm going to do with it? Like that kind of shit. But the funniest part, though, is like he was saying something. It's like the moment where Rutger Howard doesn't realize that the captain's kidding. And he's like, well, yeah, I guess we'll just send you out with a rocket launcher. And he's like, yeah, I mean, that'll work. He's like, we're not sending you out with a fucking <laughs> rocket launcher. Like, yeah. like it's hilarious. He's just like this addictive personality with everything. Yeah, he just can't. <laughs> give me bigger. Give me more. Yeah, and it's the, it's the same way throughout the movie with him and the killer. Because it's like people are like, we need to find out what's happening. And he's like, I'm going to his house. <laughs> like, It's like, they're like, settle down, dude. Like, you're going to die. I got... I got a few funny things that, that stuck out to me bullet point wise that had me cracking up. One, first off was his, um, you know, it was very brief, just a small part of it relationship with like the big German shepherd with the spike collar yep. at the one club that they are investigating. He, he calls the dog an asshole all the time. He's like, 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 you know, again, it's like always that humor for me where he's just being dead serious. Like, you know where the killer is, you little asshole. And I know get- you've seen him like, Talking the, shit on a fucking dog. And the dude who owns the dog is like, like at the one part where he's like getting ready to leave. And he's like, I think you should leave. And he's like, I wasn't talking to you. I just came to speak to your secretary. And he's talking about the <laughs> <Yeah>. dog. <laughs> that was one of the other funny parts. Cause like what he is, he's, he's just, you know, getting into his job detective and he goes to the crime scene and there's like a, you know, like where the body was laid out and uh, he, he lays like where the body was just in the bathroom on all this blood. And the guy comes in with the dog. Like, why are you laying in all that blood? Yeah. Yeah. He says that line about talking to his secretary. And then um, the other part that had me crack it up, he was like 
eating his uh, candy and he's like on the phone at the club when he's first starting to investigate. And that girl comes up to him and she's like, I'm going to go in there and pee. Don't be a creep and watch. And like, he ignores her the whole time. And I just got to chuckle out of just the dynamic of that interaction. Yep. And then, um, later on the, the goofy British dude that I was talking to, who of course they named Dick. So how Howard's character gets a kick out of that. Just the way, you know, the Tony says Dick throughout the movie. And, um, Towards the end, like three quarters of the way through, they're like going in and out of the police station, like answering to the the police chief and stuff throughout, like during this investigation. And like by the end of the movie, the the uh, police chief's like, "What the hell, Dick?" He's like, "You're becoming Harley." <laughs> you know, he's yeah. like turning into Rucker Howard. <laughs> he like loses his glasses. And, uh dude, that, yeah, there was definitely dynamics well, to they, it, but yeah, like you said, there was a lot of it that dragged out and stuff too. Like we're t- definitely talking the highlights. They cracked me up too. With the, it's the stupidest thing ever, but they did this little story arc with the the partner, where it's like Rutger Hauer refuses to drive with them. So like everywhere they go, yeah. they both have to drive, and for some reason, the <laughs> yeah. British dude sucks at it, and he always like hits his <laughs> jeep. Like it's for yeah. no, they're like he just wrecks his car constantly, and it's like, well, that's a personality trait apparently in this guy, which I thought was funny. But it's like, but yeah, that's the problem with this one is like every everything just drags out too long. Like even the killer yeah. thing, like the whole mystery of the killer drags out too long. They just there's too many investigative scenes where it's just trope after trope, and there's nothing really going on. Um, and it's really weird because, and this has happened more than once as we go back and revisit some of these, but man, some of these just don't pack the punch that they did when you first saw them years ago. And it's weird yeah, definitely because it's, I don't, that usually doesn't bother me with movies, but with these, it's really glaring that, you know, stuff that would pass at one point is now just like cringeworthy as fuck. I thought another cool part though was the, um, the, pre-fermented killings like there it was pretty graphic you know mm-hmm. a lot of gore in this one uh the killer would rip people's hearts out so and send um, it to you know, that, Rutger I Hauer yeah <laughs> I, I didn't remember a lot of the details on this I mean we probably watched it as it came out in like nine you know the mid-90s obviously so um and and then yeah it all leads to them finding out that the serial killer isn't a human like Ed had mentioned in kind of the opening uh, synopsis, but a murderous monster from like lab experiments or whatever, and uh, that was very anticlimactic too. Like they're trying to electrocute it; it's very over convoluted. Uh, you know, Kim Cattrall was getting fucked up a bit, and um, you know, Rucker Howard has some cockamamie scheme to try to electrocute him, which the the creature but basically just no cells and it comes out and grabs him, and you think, okay, Rucker Howard's fucked; like he's going to get saved by Dick. None of that happens. Howard, Howard just kind of like overpowers the creature and rips his heart out. Yeah, it just doesn't. And I was like, what the hell? Yeah, it, that didn't make sense. I think that they missed a lot of opportunities to be able to do something cool with a creature here that they just either didn't bother to do yeah, or didn't cool have the looking. money to do. Like, they, they just could have did more. And I'm just like, that's yeah. weird that they did. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't the type of movie like with Alien where the point is to hide it. You know, like you're hiding in the shadows kind of right. a thing. They didn't do that. Um, they just had this brazen balls out character for Rutger Hauer that like there should have been a payoff battle scene with the monster. And I mean there was one, but it's just not what it could have been. And that that's super disappointing because 
you know, I think it, like a lot of these movies that we've talked about on here where there's just been major dry spells and then it's like, but the last 20 minutes, man, that just didn't happen here. So I think that made the movie fall flat. It's weird as hell to me that a movie that's, that's only 90 minute running time felt like it was long as shit. Um, and it's just, I think there, there just wasn't enough really good material here, even though Rutger Hauer is pretty good in it. Uh, Kim Cattrall's barely in it, which is also weird. Uh, to have her be a side she character. She still like shows that. her titties. Yeah, of course. I mean, you kind of feel like that was the only reason to have her in the movie at this point. Um, but, you know, it's it. there's a lot of that in the movie. A lot of characters that they really just didn't need, uh, that weren't very interesting, but they wasted good screen time on, and she's kind of one of them. Um, they could have had anybody play that role. It didn't really matter. So, oh, definitely. Uh, you know, it, it, the movie overall was just kind of disappointing to me, which was really, like, I was really in shock because this is one that I remember really, really liking. And uh, I really didn't like it too much this time around. Yeah, it was an HBO video one at the time, and HBO was usually good shit, even, like, the B-level stuff like this. But, yeah, uh, I'm with you, Hey, It was definitely convoluted. I... I as you could probably tell from me talking about it, I took out most of the goofiness is what entertained me, you know, Same. Uh, usual unintentional humor and different things like that, that I had mentioned with you. And, uh, just to surmise my take on split second, as always with the Thursday night primes, the tagline of split second, he's seen the future. Now he has to kill it. And, and then we, we talked about this with Rucker Howard's character above, above where it says, the title split second on the poster it says he'll need bigger guns so they definitely incorporated uh howard's like goofy addictive personality from everything from candy and coffee to bigger guns and um it had the traditional thursday night prime ending they're just on a boat arguing and the camera's pan- camera's panning up with the end credits and he's like shut the hell up dick <laughs> yeah like, that's how it ended yep Absolutely. Two stars, hey yo. Yep, that's, two stars from the J. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny too that uh, that tagline's ridiculous because they they make it sound like it's a monster from the future, and it's not. It's a monster in the future where everyone else is also in the future. There's no time travel in the movie. <laughs> um, they don't. They didn't see. It, it seemed like they didn't really know what they wanted to do. Uh, with the movie, it was kind of convoluted, as you said. Um, the same thing as you said, too. The, the most entertaining stuff here was the goofiness. And uh, that's pretty much about it. So, uh, yeah, I'd agree with you uh, wholeheartedly on the five-star scale. Two stars for me as well. So that's it for us this week on Thursday Night Prime. Uh, however, next week we have another one that's going to be interesting. Uh, it's a movie from 1995. It stars Robert Hayes from Airport and Pamela Anderson, and it's directed by David Pryor, who had made a uh, really well-beloved slasher film in the 80s called Sledgehammer, but this one is called Raw Justice, and uh, it's forever known as the movie where Robert Hayes bangs Pamela Anderson in 1995, which me and the Jay are going to get into next week on the podcast. So stay tuned for that, guys. We are going to take a quick commercial break. When we come up, we're going to do our usual wrap-up. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. Hey, everyone. It's Ed from the What's Real Podcast here today for Gross Fest 2020. 
Well, fellow horror fans, the goal of Grossfest is to have a one-day horror convention that has lots of independent filmmakers in their films, cool vendors, cool authors, beer, and just having fun horror in independent nerd haven. Yes, we're going for more independent film stuff than mainstream, but all is welcome. We want to try and keep the vendor spaces and tickets cheap and have it at a great location that may allow us to do it again if we can pull it off. We do not want to reinvent the convention. As much as try and have a horror convention in Pittsburgh, people will care about as much as the past. It's about horror fans having fun for the day. Grossfest 2020 takes place July 25th and 26th, 2020 at the George Washington Hotel, 60 South Main Street, Washington, PA, 15301 at 724-225-3200. Check us out at grossfest.com. And we're back, guys. That is it for us this week. We're finishing up the show. We thank you guys for listening. As usual, uh, the the total rundown, as we always do. If you guys want to send us anything, you can do so by email. Uh, any comments, concerns, questions, complaints, or just cuss us out if you want to. Uh, you can do that at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Again, that is whatsrealpod at gmail.com. If you're listening on iTunes, we would really appreciate a five-star review, and we thank you guys for doing that for us. Uh, we appreciate the newest ones that we've gotten each and every week. And also, don't forget to give us a follow on Twitter at whatsrealpod1. Again, a follow on the Twitters at what what's real pod one so as you guys notice on the show we normally do goofs for goofs but we're not going to do that this week um because of certain things that are going on in the country we felt that it would be kind of right uh for us to take it a little bit more seriously this week um with the passing of george floyd um at the hands of a police officer um I think that me and the Jay both pretty much agree on this kind of stuff. Um, that, you know, the protesting in the country is pretty much warranted by people uh, who feel marginalized, and that sucks. And as white people, we don't really understand what black and African American people have to go through in this country on a day to day basis uh, dealing with the police. Um, this is something that me and Jared have both witnessed uh, in person throughout our lives. As we've mentioned on the podcast before, we've, we've went to school and known people of color and minorities pretty much our whole lives. So we have seen things uh, from their experience where we've seen friends of ours being treated poorly uh, just due to the fact that they're minorities. So with that being said, obviously, to the friends and family of George Floyd, we offer our condolences. Um, what happened was an unfortunate tragedy that really shouldn't happen to anybody. And it really is even worse when it's at the hands of law enforcement officials. So, um, you know, as a podcast, we like to stand with those minorities uh, in unity uh, with all the support we possibly can. And uh, hopefully this can create some sort of change in the country for the better. Um, Because at the end of the day, we all need to do a little bit better and treat people better of all types. So, uh, but specifically in this instance, uh, you know, we're kind of recognizing the plight of black people because it kind of sucks the way they're treated in this country. And uh, hopefully this can lead to some meaningful change and make things a little bit better uh, for all of us, but specifically for the folks in the black community. Great words spoken. Hey, yo. And uh, yeah, I consistently say in my life, life is timing. You know, as a human being, um, 
you know, timing is such a huge aspect. I feel I do so many different things and, and, and timing is so huge. And we started this podcast smack dab. Uh, that's why I brought that up with the timing of it on uh, the first week of the new year, um, the first week of January, 2020. And boy, what a journey it's been. Neither Ed or I could have ever predicted where the roller coaster ride that is 2020 would take us. And we aren't even halfway through, folks. Uh, I think it was a handful of podcasts to go for our Goofs or Goofs segment. We had the year 2020 on there as a goof because of how many things. And there was this grocery list of crazy events from murder hornets to the pandemic, obviously. And just since then, now we can add this unnecessary death by law enforcement to nationwide rioting, um, stemming, we must say, from peaceful protesting mm-hmm. for a bunch of different reasons. And we don't need to get into everything. We, we promised our listeners on here we're an entertainment show and a fun show, and we're not going to get into the classic politics and religion facets. But when certain topics and issues are going to be at hand that we feel are going to be important, Ed and I are going to give our opinions on them. And I think that's the case here. And I don't feel like we're getting into politics or anything with, with this discussion. And, you know, for those that, that might enjoy a lighthearted ending, uh, don't worry. We'll, we'll definitely always have our goofs. And goofs or goofs are, are going to be back. That's a what's real podcast tradition. But we feel like we need to take advantage of this platform with people that hear our voice, with people that listen to us, with such a serious situation ongoing, even as we speak here in our country. And myself having small children, my wife and I have even had to sit them down and make sure they understood what was going on and make sure that they knew not to treat people like some people are capable of treating people just because they're different, whether it is skin color, nationality, gender, sexual orientation. And um, I just kind of said it best, in my opinion, just summed it up on on Facebook. Uh, I'm just going to blast through my comment. Hey, Ed. Um, I'll take it home and, and let you ride us out. Um, so I had said as a, as I utilize social media to stay in touch with friends and family and to help promote our film company, at this time, I did not want to remain silent being on the platform. This is a non-political viewpoint and opinion. Growing up in the Woodland Hills community fortunately gave me the perspective that all humans should be treated and considered equal regardless of race, religion, nationality, gender, sexual orientation, etc., Unfortunately, there seems to be a lot of people that were not fortunate enough to have a similar experience. My Woodland Hills friends are like extended family and come from all walks of life. At this time, though, it is important to realize that specifically the African-American community is in need of support. It is up to all of us who consider ourselves good people to do what we can to help turn this current state around. Let's all try and do our part, big or small. I personally will continue to do my best to support the African-American community and all good people. I love all my friends. Black Lives Matter. All love. JB. Yep, I couldn't have said that any better myself, man. I totally agree with you. Black Lives Matter. And, uh, you know, it's just time that we start doing better by people in this world. I think that's pretty safe to be said. So, yeah, I think that that's a pretty good way to end the show. Um, Thank you guys for listening. Um, And, uh, you know, as usual, uh, we tend to run it down. I wanted to say, too, another mention on the show. Um, to our friends Gus and Russ, who lost their grandmother this week. Um, shout out to them. Uh, our condolences, obviously, uh, from us to you guys and your families. And, uh, you know, it sucks. 
but yeah, just taking it home. Um, shout out to the producer Cam. Thanks for your work, Cam. You the man. Uh, to Hey Ed, my partner in crime, another solid week, man. Again, it's always a, a positive escape to just cut the shit up with you and, and put together our creative outlet that is our What's Real podcast. Uh, to everybody out there that's that's struggling, um, whether it's the pandemic or the racial profiling, all the serious stuff we're talking about, man, uh, we're with you. You know, there's a lot of good people in this world. We just got to have each other's back and um, you know, stay safe and stay healthy out there, everybody. You'll hear me next week. Take care. Much love. Right on the J. So, you know, shout out to the producer Cam for all the work he puts in every week on the show. Uh, the J. Nobody else would rather be doing it with, brother. Appreciate you sitting down with me, as usual, every week. And uh, thanks for listening, guys. Uh, we're also going to be ending the show a little bit differently this week. Um, stay safe, stay healthy, and here's a moment of silence for the family and memory of none other than George Floyd. What's real? What's real? What's real? The real question is What's real? What's real?